Amen. Now grab a seat. All right, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Jonah chapter 3 is where we'll be. We've finished up chapter 2 last week and we'll be in 3. Uh, if you uh, haven't been here with us the whole time or have missed the beginning, well, let, me, let me catch you up real quick on what is happening. God came to his prophet, his, his guy who speaks for him, Jonah, and he said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach uh, uh, its destruction. And Jonah said, no, I'm going to go this way. And so he runs actually 3,000 miles in the opposite direction, gets on a boat, and leaves. And so God then sends a hurricane-type storm uh, in the ocean while he's on this boat, and it is threatening to destroy the boat and sink. And, and so the, the, the guys on the ship figure out Jonah is the reason that this storm has come upon him. And so Jonah says, the only way to stop it is to throw me overboard. So they throw Jonah overboard. The storm stops. A giant fish comes, swallows Jonah up, and it's the mercy of God. And the, and the fish takes Jonah back to where he came from, spits him up on dry land. And that is where we pick up this morning. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 3. Verses 1 through 10. As you're turning there, many of you projects. Uh, Lowe's has made more money than anyone in the world because, they, I mean, they've got nothing on the shelves because everyone's been doing home projects. And uh, one of the, you know, I've been doing a lot of things at the house, and recently I was painting something, and I had a little bucket of paint left and that we had used, and I had this one kind of space to paint, and, and I really did not want to buy another gallon of the same paint to do this one little area that I needed to do. And so I was like, you know what? I think I can stretch this paint to go far enough. And so, uh, I mean, it was close. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm pushing the roller down in the pan as hard as I can, holding the thing upside down, getting every drop out of the bucket, using a brush and getting every little bit, you know, and, 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 and slapping on the wall and, and barely had enough to cover what I was going to do. But I think sometimes, I think sometimes we wonder if God is not having to scrape the bottom of the bucket, the bottom of the pail of his grace, the bucket of his grace. And I think sometimes we wonder, is there going to be enough grace for me? Is there going to be enough love and mercy and grace for me? Or is God having to, to drip every last drop of his bucket of grace out to find enough to hopefully cover us. I think sometimes we think that is the case. And if we make too many more mistakes, there will not be any left to spare. This morning in Jonah chapter three, I think we will, it will serve us as a reminder of the nature of God's grace to us and whether or not that bucket of grace is full or if it's down to its last drop. Jonah chapter three, starting in verse one, prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and God speaks, and he says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, Jonah began to go into the city, going into day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's walk through this together. Verse one told us, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This is an extraordinary verse, a verse that is soaked full of grace and second chances. Understand the backdrop. God does not need Jonah. God does not need us to accomplish his mission in the world. He doesn't need any of us. If God wanted to, he could make the rocks cry out and worship him with a word of command from him. If he wanted to, he could make the trees sing his praises. He is in complete sovereign control, but by his grace, he is allowing Jonah and allowing us to be included in his plan to rescue the world. He allows us to be used in this work that he is doing. He does not have to. He is not obligated to. He does not need us. But yet, we get to be a part of it. And so what an honor and a privilege it is for Jonah and for us to be a part of it. And so now God comes to Jonah, called to be this prophet, called to go to Nineveh to preach there. Jonah disobeys. He runs away. And after all the business of the storm and the whale, Jonah's back where he started. And God in his patience comes to Jonah a second time. He comes again to Jonah. He speaks again. We serve a God of second chances, a God who we fail again and again and again, and yet we find we always get another chance. God doesn't give up on Jonah. He doesn't say, well, Jonah, you had your shot. Now I'm going to use Bob down the road. But Bob, we'll use Bob. Jonah, you screwed up. Next in line. He doesn't do that. He says, no, Jonah, we're going to do this again. Arise. He says the same thing. Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city. He gets a second chance. God doesn't give up on Jonah. God, think about this, God pursued Jonah across the sea and back again. And now God is entrusting to Jonah the same task and the same mission. He's entrusting to Jonah the salvation of an entire city. Tonight, millions of people are going to gather around to watch the Super Bowl, uh, the, the largest sporting event in history. And imagine with me for a moment that, uh, you know, everybody wanting whatever, whatever team, imagine whatever team, and imagine that throughout the game, the kicker of that particular team missed every field goal, missed every extra point, and because of that, the game comes down to the wire. 
and the quarterback drives the ball down the field. There's a little bit of time on the clock, and they're down by one point. And the question is, do you go for the touchdown or do you kick the field goal for the win? But your kickers missed every field goal, missed every extra point. What do you do? And imagine that the coach comes to that kicker and he looks at him and he says, I know you've missed every field goal. I know you've missed every extra point, but you're our kicker. You're our guy and I trust you. And he sends him out on the field. Go win us the game. Imagine the fans. Boo! What are you doing, coach? This guy stinks. Don't, don't put it. We got 30 seconds. Put it in Tom's hand. Let him throw the ball. Let's go. And if, it, if, it, if the kicker misses it, you know that coach is going to get excoriated. But the coach, instead, he looks at him and says, you're my guy. I trust you. Go out in the field and win us the game. Regardless of the outcome, the coach entrusts the victory to his kicker. Listen, God doesn't listen to all of the voices who say, you do not deserve a second chance. Maybe you've missed every field goal and every extra point. Maybe you've missed up again and again in your life. You've just dropped the ball again and again and again. God is not listening to all the voices in your life that say you do not deserve another chance. It's not like God's like, you know, I was thinking about giving you another chance, but so-and-so down the road said you didn't deserve one. You just screw it up again. He's not listening to that. Even when the devil comes and he says, you know what, you've had your third strike, you're out. When the devil comes and he says, God's done with you, when he tells you there's no more grace, when he tells you God can't use you anymore, you're too broken, yet still we find a God who entrusts to you his mission that he has called you to. Because not only is God using you on this mission and on this task to rescue the world, God is using you so that in the using you, he's actually changing you and making you new. And so you get a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance, and he keeps coming even if he has to pursue you across the sea and back again. Can you imagine, can you think, can you remember all of the times God has given you second chances in your life? I mean, have you had second chances maybe in your marriage? Second chances in your parenting? Second chances in, in getting to sh- needing to share the gospel with that person you work with? Second chances on starting reading your Bible at the beginning of the year again? Second chances in finally stepping up and saying, you know what, I'm going to serve in our church, and I've been thinking I need to do it for a long time, and I'll keep making excuses, but I'm going to do it. Second chances to be generous. Second chances to step out of your comfort zone. If we really thought about it, if we really could see, we would see countless times that God again and again has given us second chances and third and fourth and fifth chances to be used by him to grow and to bring light into the darkness. But like Jonah, sometimes we run away from our calling. Sometimes we run away from things. We ignore it. So often God has to prepare us before we are ready to step out to the task that he has called us. He sent Jonah through a storm and three nights in the belly of a whale. And while all of those events were hard and could have been avoided, God doesn't waste anything. God doesn't waste any moment, any failure, any mistake in your life. Instead, he is is using them to mold you into something lovely and someone that God can use for good. 
You see, I think actually it is often our most broken places and broken moments in our life that actually make us fit to be used by God. It's actually our, the, the failures of our past and the brokenness of our present that makes us fit to be used by God. Because it is in God's rebuilding and redeeming of us that we are able to see with clear eyes the brokenness in the world and not see it through harsh judgmental eyes, but through eyes of compassion. Where if we were not broken and did not understand our own failures, we would instead look at the world in judgmental harshness. Think of the disciples that Jesus called. Tax collector, fishermen, poor people, people who were looked down upon and rejected. Matthew, the tax collector, who was hated by the Jews because he was a Roman capitulator. And Jesus says, come, you come follow me. So now when Matthew's following Jesus and he sees Jesus eating meals with prostitutes and hookers, while everyone else is gasping and shocked, Matthew gets it. Matthew understands what Jesus is doing because the same grace that the hookers need, he needed. Because just like they failed, he failed. And he's able to see it with new eyes. It is particularly Matthew's brokenness, the disciples' brokenness, their failures, that have put them in the position to be used by God mightily. You see, God loves to use washed up, broken people because they know more than anyone else how much a second chance can change one's life. And if God loves to use washed up, broken people to do extraordinary things, then there is no reason why God cannot use you. If God uses broke up, broken, washed up people to do extraordinary things, there's no reason that God cannot use you. There is nothing that you have done. And understand this part. There, not only is there nothing that you've done, but there's nothing that's been done to you or nothing that you've been through that somehow bars you or restrains you from knowing God or being used by God. God never gives up on Jonah. God never gives up on Nineveh. He chases him across the sea. And God never gives up on you. God loves to use washed up, broken people. Look at verse four. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So now Jonah's making his way to Nineveh, now remember that Nineveh is the capital city of all of Assyria. And he's passed through the gates. He's, he goes past the guards. He's walking through this huge city full of people that do not look like Jonah, sound like Jonah, dress like Jonah, a people who, are, who glory in their violence, a people who are marked by their wickedness. And as Jonah walks through the city that he hates, that Jonah hates, Jonah would have stuck out like a sore thumb. His clothes would have been different, his skin color different, his accent were different. Not to mention his skin was probably still bleached white from the stomach acids of the whale that he spent three nights in. 
And so here is this prophet walking with ragged clothes, bleached skin white, this Hebrew walking into the to enemy number one's territory. We don't know how Jonah feels. We don't know if he's scared. We don't know if he's nervous. We don't know if he's just over it and whatever. I don't care if they kill me. But he walks in and he begins to preach the world's shortest, most depressing sermon ever to a people who hate him. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. He's walking through the city, looking like he is, to enemy number one, leaning up against a cart in the shopping square. Hey, guys, in 40 days, God's going to wipe you all out. Walking through, hey, guys, and probably not passionate. He's probably not pleading. He's probably not going, guys, in 40 days, God's going to destroy you. He's probably like, hey, guys, in 40 days, I'm going to be sitting out up on this hill, and I'm going to watch fire come down and blow you all up. It's going to be awesome. He's pumped for it. 40 days, and God's going to overthrow you. Now, none of us like giving bad news. Jonah goes with this bad news message, but none of us like to give bad news. Whether you're a kid who broke a window and you got to go tell your mom and dad that you threw a baseball through the window, or if you're a, a doctor who after surgery has to go to a family and tell them that you did your best but the surgery didn't go as planned, we all hate bad news. And yet God calls Jonah to preach this simple message of bad news, that God's judgment and wrath are coming in 40 days to destroy the Ninevites. Now some people ask, why do we focus so much on bad news? Why do we focus so much on these hard things? Like, why do we talk about sin and judgment and wrath and hell? Why, why do we talk about those things? Why not? Isn't Christianity supposed to be this religion of love and peace? And, and shouldn't we just talk about, you know, sunshine and rainbows and good feelings and, and, and you get a car and you get a car, right? And, and, and it's all good and, and love and all the love and just hugs. Good news, should we just focus on that? But the problem is, for people to truly understand the good news, they must understand the bad news first. That you can't get the good news without the bad news. That the good news actually isn't good news without the bad news. Do you remember, uh, maybe in high school, maybe some of you in the high school now, maybe when you were growing up through high school, you probably read an excerpt from this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, by Jonathan Edwards. If there was ever a hell, fire, and brimstone sermon, it was that sermon. Let me, let me, I'm going to read you just a little expert. 1700s, Jonathan Edwards. He says this. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over a fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath and wide and bottomless pit full of fire and wrath that you are held over in the hand of God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready at every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. That's encouraging. <laughs> it was that sermon 
and others like it that led to the first great awakening that swept revival across America in the 1700s. You see, people don't need good news until they understand the bad news. Good news isn't good news unless there's bad news. The good news is meant to counteract the bad news. You see, the gospel is not merely that God loves you. If it was just that God loves you, that's not good. That's not even news. The gospel is that God's righteous anger and judgment was directed at you and me, just like it was in the Ninevites. But his love is demonstrated in that while we were sinners and deserved that judgment and des- rightly deserved that wrath, he spared us by sending his one and only son to take our place and receive that anger and judgment in our place. Now that is love. That is love because that is love that costs something. That's not just cheap, sentimental, I love you, sunshines and rainbows love. That is a love that cost his one and only son to receive the judgment and wrath of hell. That is love. That is good news. Understand this, on the cross, God is saving you from himself. You understand that. He's not saving you from the devil. He is saving you from his own judgment and his own wrath and anger. There are lots of people with good intentions who want to make Christianity easier for people to accept and to swallow and believe. And to make it easier to think, you know, let's just remove these negative hard parts, this bad news. Let's not talk about sin and judgment and wrath. And let's just talk about love and acceptance. But in removing the bad news, you effectively remove the good news with it. Without judgment and wrath and sin, there's no cross. And if there's no cross, there's no salvation. And if there's no cross and no salvation, there's no good news. God's love for us is good news. It is amazing for the simple fact that we don't deserve it, and yet he paid the ultimate price to give it and to love us, despite us. See, the cross is simultaneously God's judgment and anger towards sin and his incredible love towards sinners. To hate sin and love sinners is great, but it costs something for God. It costs him his one and only son to love you, and that's good news for us. You see, if we preach a God full of wrath and anger with no love, or if we preach a God full of love with no wrath, in both cases, we will miss the gospel. Some churches just want to talk about hell all the time. Other churches just want to talk about love all the time. We've got to talk about both. Love with no hell is sentimental. Hell with no love is harsh. But we believe in a cross and a Savior who hung on it and took hell so that he could love us. It is the bad news of judgment over our sin, which makes the good news of God's forgiveness actually good news. So Jonah goes to Nineveh, preaches this bad news, and what happens? You've heard me talk about who the Ninevites are, that they're this cruel, wicked, violent people. But here's a quote from one of the kings of Assyria, just so you kind of understand. In his memoir, he said this, I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. Many of the captive I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hand to the wrist. From others I I cut off their noses and ears and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of their soldiers. I burnt their young men and women to death. 
and that is met with cheers and glory. This was a people who gloried in their wickedness. Jonah probably expected that when he went into the city telling them that in 40 days that God was going to take them out, that they'd arrest him, throw him in jail, torture him, and kill him. But what actually happened is something he probably never expected. And it's exactly the thing he definitely did not want to happen. It's sad to say that Jonah might have preferred death to what actually happened. But here's how the Ninevites responded, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd or flock taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way, from their violence that is in his hands. Who knows? May God turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In 2001, there was no man more hated in America than Osama bin Laden. And a few years later, SEAL Team 6 found him hiding in a cave, put him to death, and there were cheers and celebrations and parties in the streets. As the man who killed hundreds and thousands of people, thousands of Americans, was finally put in the dirt. But imagine with me for a moment that before SEAL Team 6 found their way to that cave, that some scruffy-looking prophet, some scruffy-looking preacher, found the cave himself, was let in past the guards, past the ammunition crates and AK-47s to the heart of the cave, went up to Osama bin Laden himself and said, Sir, you have committed your life to a false god. You have lived an evil and wicked way. And if you do not turn God's Righteous anger will devour you in an eternal hell. If you will turn from your sin and proclaim Jesus as Lord, he will have mercy on your soul. And imagine that in that moment, Osama bin Laden stood up and took off his turban and his Muslim garments, and he hit his knees and said, Jesus is Lord. God forgive me, a sinner. How would we have responded to that? Because that is precisely what Jonah is facing when the king of Nineveh, Assyria, stands up and removes his clothes and cries out to God for mercy. You see, God can take the hardest of hearts, the most rebellious, most wicked people change them in a moment. There is no one who is too far gone. There is no one whose life is too broken, no soul so black that God cannot make it as white as snow. He gives up on no one. God takes death and breathes life in it. He takes dead hearts and makes them alive. Takes heart of stones and makes them hearts of flesh. Text says, 
not that the Ninevites believed Jonah. It says that they believed God. Historians tell us that during this time, there were extreme weather conditions happening, that there were multiple eclipses, and that there was a famine in the land, almost as if God was sending all of these things, preparing and softening the hearts of the Ninevites to receive his prophet when he came. It's almost like God went before Jonah to prepare them to receive the message. Just as God had been chasing this prophet across the ocean, in fact, he had been chasing the hearts of the wicked Ninevites. He was preparing them to receive him by faith. And does not God do the same with us? Does God not do the same with us? For 15 years of my life, God was preparing me to receive him. As I look back, I can see so many little details in my life, conversations, dreams, moments that God was preparing me to receive him so that when the time came, the moment of decision, I was ready to give my whole life to him, but only because he had prepared me. Many of you in this room have family and friends who do not know the Lord, and maybe you look at them and you think their hearts are so hardened against God that there is no hope for them. But just as God pursued Jonah's rebellious heart across the sea, just as God pursued the wicked Ninevites, still he can pursue and change our friends and our families' hearts who are hardened against him. And the power of God that causes this shocking scene to see uh, this, this king of wickedness and violence rip his clothes and for 40 days not eat or drink but sit in ashes and cry out to God for mercy. In the same way that God and his power can change him, so can God's power change any one of us. So we should begin to pray for our family and our friends who are far from God like this. God, take their hearts of stone and make them flesh. Take those that are spiritually dead and breathe life into them. Pursue them and save them. We should pray, God, work a miracle of salvation in their life because salvation for every one of us is a miracle. No one would have thought the Ninevites the city of Nineveh was a likely place for revival. No one would have bet any money that revival would have came to Nineveh. But isn't that exactly like our God, to bring revival to those furthest from him? And isn't it, and isn't it people like the Ninevites, broken and lost, exactly the type of people Jesus came for? See, God can change the heart of even the worst of whether you're a rebellious prophet or a violent, wicked nation, there is no heart too far gone for our God to say. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When God saw Nineveh repent and believe, he relented from the disaster he said he would do. Now, this, does not, this is not God changing his mind. This is not God uh, changing at all. You see, from the very beginning, God had revival on his mind. He wanted to give them the bad news, the warning, in hopes that they would turn and believe, and then God could lavish them with mercy. From the beginning, that was God's plan for Nineveh. 
And in the same way, God was, has always had a plan for you and I, for the whole world. From the very foundations of the world, he's had a plan, and he has never deviated from that plan, not once. Jonah is pointing forward to that plan, to that prophet who would be the opposite of Jonah. You know, if God sent us to Jonah, we'd be in a lot of trouble, would we not? But he sent us a better Jonah a true and better prophet who would not run away from the city God called him to. That Jesus would not run away from the world God called him to go save like Jonah did, but he would come, run after it in excitement to save us instead. When called, Jesus left his home, came to this broken world to speak for God to us. And he, unlike Jonah, obeyed. But like Jonah, Jesus brought some bad news. Jesus said, listen, guys, you know that you're sinners, but it's actually worse than you think. You see, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say, don't even be angry in your heart because that's murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but if you lust in your heart, that's adultery too. He said, actually, the law is significantly harder to keep than you think it is. You are vastly more sinful than you could ever imagine. We are all guilty and judgment is coming for every one of us. But Jesus doesn't come simply to deliver this message of judgment, this bad news. He comes to take the bad news away, to take judgment for us. And on the cross, Jesus receives the hand of justice, the fire from heaven that was meant to destroy the Ninevites and destroy us on himself. Nineveh could be spared the judgment of God because Jesus took their place few thousand years later. God's plan from the beginning was that there would be one savior for sin, one sacrifice for sin, and Jesus would be the only one pure enough and obedient enough to endure it. You see, if you come to Christ, you trust in Christ, never again, ever. Well, here's the good news, that this bad news is over. If you are in Christ, never again can God be angry at you. Never again will his judgment be pointed at you. If you come to Christ, you will find a love so full that it went through hell to rescue you, and it would do it again. Over and over again in this book, we see the word great or big. God called Jonah to that great city. He sent a great storm. There was a great fish. God is about to bring a great disaster on Nineveh, but instead we get a great revival. And I think the point of all this big, over-the-top, great things happening is to remind us of how great our God is. God is so great that he can use weak and broken people like me and you to change the world. God is so great that he can be both loving and just by refusing to let sin go unpunished and by providing a way of escape from judgment so he can be both just and loving at the same time. God is so great that he can soften the hardest of hearts. God is so great that from the very beginning he had a plan that he himself would rescue us from judgment and he never faltered from that plan. God had a plan of amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a really good person like me. A really on top of the world person like me, a person who's got it all together like me. No, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Oh, what a good word, a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. 
was blind, but now I see. You see, we serve a God who truly has amazing grace. Grace for all, no matter how far you run, no matter how wicked you are, there is grace aplenty, a bottomless pit of grace with plenty to spare. He is not scraping the bottom of the barrel to find grace for you. Rather, there is enough to lavish it on you with thousands of gallons to spare. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we gather together to remind ourselves of your grace and love. Uh, We're a broken people, and yet you loved us. Yet you want to use us. Yet you can change the hearts of those furthest from you. And so, God, if there are people in this room this morning who are far from you, whose hearts are far from you, maybe they're far from you like Jonah, that they were close enough, close enough to Christianity, close enough to religion, close enough to church that they thought they were good, but when push comes to shove, they run. And maybe they realize they never were yours, they never belonged to you. God, if that's them this morning, would you show them that you are waiting with open arms for a second chance to come and believe truly? Or maybe there are people in here who are like the Ninevites, who are just wicked, messed up, broken people, and you are welcoming them home as well. And maybe there are some of the people in this room right now, Father, and they belong to you, they're yours, but they struggle because they've done these things in their past or their present, because things have been done to them, they think they can't be used by you. You think, they think they're done. They think they're gonna scrape into heaven by the skin of their teeth. How would you remind them this morning? that they, uh, You do not scrape the bottom of the barrel for grace, but you turn it over on them and it just keeps coming. It doesn't stop. It just keeps flowing because there's no end to the grace that you supply because the blood of our Savior flowed and has completely absorbed the judgment we deserve. So Father, Give strength to people in this room this morning. If they don't know you, but they've been religious but don't know you, or they've been wicked and don't know you, give them the courage to come up and talk to me or one of these guys up here and say, help me know Jesus. I don't know him. If there's people in here who need to be encouraged and reminded, Lord, maybe they just need to come pray with one of us. Maybe they need to stand there and sing this, this old song afresh. That amazing grace comes for wretches. That there's, a, there's really bad news that's accompanied by really good news. Now we need it. Help us to respond. In Christ's name we pray all as people said, we'll stand and sing together.